I'm thankful to be back up here this morning. We're going to pick up where we left off with our current Sunday morning teaching series. It's entitled Revolution, Christ Over Culture. It's an in-depth analysis of the book of Acts. And if you have your study guide to follow along, I hope you've read in preparation of that and prayed in preparation of that. We're going to look at Lesson 11 that's going to cover the majority of the first portion of the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. In Lesson 11, I want to call your attention to a certain concept that we've kind of seen transition repetitively throughout our study of this book of Acts. And it's a concept of the revolution viewed from two different perspectives. If you notice, there are many times, and actually probably thus far in our study of the book of Acts, the majority of our perception of the revolution known as Christianity that the book of Acts entails for us or details for us. The majority of that perception has been what I want to call an expansive perception. In other words, it's been a, it's, it's been an, a broad view, an expansive view of this revolution and how that uh, multitudes of people's lives were transformed and how that this revolution was not necessarily personal, but it was personal. But so far, we've really kind of seen it in the majority of this document as, as, as an overview, as a massive revolution, and that's exactly what it was. If you remember the words of, of the great Jewish leader that we encountered a few uh, lessons back when he said, listen, if this is not of God, you don't have to worry about anything, but it's, if it is of God, then who can stop it? Not even us, essentially. It was an expansive revolution, and still today, I believe God desires Christianity our relationship with Him to be an expansive revolution. It's not merely that in our relationship with God we have a horizontal relationship between us and God. But it is the truth that our relationship with God affects every other relationship in our lives, or at least it should be. That relationship, revolutionary relationship, is not merely uh, vertical, but it is also horizontal. And as we've seen this expansive perception, we're going to encounter in lesson 11, we're going to encounter as we zoom in on the ninth chapter to the specific life of an individual that we were introduced to back in this seventh chapter, we're going to encounter a specific perception, a very specific and a very personal perception of the revolution. And let me pause here for a moment and say this, that the hinge that, the, that a cultural revolution swings upon is that of a personal revolution. In other words, you cannot have, you cannot create, you cannot fabricate, you cannot incite a cultural revolution if you have not experienced or someone has not experienced a personal revolution. As we see this transition of perception from broad to specific, specific as we see this transition of perception from expansive to personal, we are reminded of the necessity of personal revolution in order to continue to fuel and incite this massive 
cultural revolution. We're going to find ourselves in the ninth chapter encountering a rather climactic, or so it will seem, personal revolution in, a, in the form of a transformation of an individual who had thus far been known only as a foe to this ecclesiastical movement known as Christianity. This man's name was Saul. And I want to preface some things with our, uh, with our small amount of time that we have to look into Saul and who he was prior to his conversion. Most of us today within the church would know him as Paul and know him as the author of a large majority of the New Testament books and one of the key figures that we're going to encounter now throughout the book of Acts. But I want to take just a, a very limited amount of time this morning to help us understand who he could have been, who we know that he was, and who we speculate that he was prior to his conversion. We first met this man at the end of the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. If you want to go back and listen to that lesson, that would be from lesson nine in the Revolution Teaching Series. And we encountered this man, Saul, in the seventh chapter, lesson nine of our teaching series, in a rather negative light, to put it uh, smoothly, to put it lightly. We encountered Saul. Saul as Stephen, that one of the first seven deacons of the church, one of the first seven uh, volunteer servant leaders of the church, as Stephen was preaching the gospel, and because of his preaching of the gospel, his declaration of the gospel, he had uh, kind of had an abrasive moment with some men who were of the synagogue of the freedmen, and they didn't quite let some things go, and they continued to be abrasive towards Stephen and his message in the seventh chapter of Acts. And we see that as things continued to escalate between they and Stephen, this great servant of the church, we see that they began to uh, really try to pursue a persecution, if you will, not necessarily a planned persecution, but rather one that was motivated by emotions and motivated by anger. And they drag Stephen to be uh, presented before council, and there Stephen is tried, but yet he continues to remain faithful to the teaching and the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. And as Stephen does so, he continues to incite anger on the part of these hearers who did not want to hear his message. And you know how that story ends. I don't have time to detail it for you. But the story ends with the hearers there who were persecuting and prosecuting Stephen. Those hearers were so filled with anger that they literally were gritting their teeth. And they ran upon him and they rushed upon him and they picked up rocks and they stoned him to death, and Stephen remained faithful to his relationship with Jesus, even in the experience of certain death, and he looks up to heaven, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God, and there he looks at him, and he looks at those who are taking his life for his commitment to the gospel, and he says, Lord, do not lay this sin against them, don't lay it on their part, and having said that, he gave up the ghost, he fell asleep, and he passed from this life to the next, and the scripture denotes for us that those who had stoned Stephen laid their coats at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And here we are first introduced to this rather wicked and perceived as evil individual named Saul. Somehow, and the details we're not exactly sure of, but somehow Saul was the motivating factor. He was the motivating leader behind the stoning, which was essentially an illegal lynching of Stephen because of his message 
concerning the gospel. We're introduced to Paul here, but if we read between the lines, we must come to the conclusion that there was something greater going on here, motivating Paul's fury towards the church and towards its gospel message. I want you to understand something, that the religion of Judaism... The Jewish religion is one that is essentially, for lack of better terms, founded upon argument. You would actually, it's perceived within Judaism that you would, you would arrive at a proper interpretation of the truth through argument and debate. Now, obviously, orderly and respectful argument and debate. And so it is absolutely unlike anything that is woven into the structure of Judaism that would cause this individual named Saul to so vehemently, passionately hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me, let me just pause for a moment and uh, try to drive that perspective home by going back into the book of Acts. Do you remember that before the stoning of Stephen, there were two separate instances in which the disciples were imprisoned. They were stuck in jail overnight and then they were tried in kind of an informal fashion really. They were kind of tried I guess you could say and then they were let go because they were not perceived as an existential threat to Judaism. Rather they were just perceived as another sect of Judaism such as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes and the Zealots. And so they let them go. It is not until Saul arrives on the scene and motivates and leads these individuals to stone Stephen to the point of his death, which I want to spend a little time explaining to you would have been totally illegal in first century Jewish culture because of the Jews' oppression to the Romans. The Jews could not carry out capital punishment. They could not sentence someone to death. Caesar had to do that. This was literally an illegal lynching that cost Stephen his life through martyrdom. And it was Saul who was the motivating factor, the leader behind every bit of this persecution. And it was his action here that would induce further persecution, that would continue not only here in Acts chapter 8 when the church would flee and disperse and try to hide out, and not only in chapter 9 as we pick up, but, but even after Saul's conversion, this same mentality would continue to grow. It is documented for us. In the beginning of the ninth chapter at the first verse, how that Saul would continue before he meets Jesus, he would continue to desire to do what he did to Stephen, to others. Chapter 9, verse 1 documents it like this. Now Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked the high priest, would you give me permission in the second verse to go and to find anybody else? who identifies with this movement and to imprison them. Notice there Saul is not out to stone them to death as he, uh, as he oversaw Stephen doing because in hindsight he probably realized this was wrong of him and those involved. But he said, still yet, can I take these people and imprison them? Perhaps Caesar would try them and perhaps somehow then they would face a capital punishment. But nonetheless, we see that Paul's vehement, passionate, Opposition to the church is unlike anything we have seen thus far. Many times I think as we uh, try to put together a set of anomalies about Paul's perception of the church, I think we misinterpret some things. 
And I think we misinterpret this set of anomalies about Paul's uh, actions and perception toward the church mainly because we typically think of Paul's conversion experience in Acts chapter 9 to be perhaps a decade or two decades or maybe even longer in your minds after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But perhaps maybe I can explain it to you like this. When Stephen is stoned to death, that was about six months after that first New Testament Pentecost that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. And that was shortly before Paul's conversion, right? And, and Pentecost occurred 50 days after that Passover in which Jesus was crucified. So Paul's conversion experience is not separated from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by decades or even really by years, but probably by a matter of months, just a little bit shy of a year, if I may give you my own hypothesis based on my studies. And so these events are very, very closely related. And I think as we look at Paul's perception of the church, we see in all these little anomalies and, and, and the details about Paul's involvement of Stephen's death, we can see that there is something going on here that is fueling Paul, fueling Saul, I'll call him until after his conversion, uh, something is going on here that is fueling Saul. He has some type of personal vendetta because his hatred and his passion to distinguish the gospel far outweighs anybody else's who would have opposed this movement known as the church. I want to weave some fabric of my imagination out for you this morning. And I think there's some scripture that backs up this ideology. And maybe some of it is literally just my imagination. But I believe that Saul was so vehemently opposed to the message of the gospel. Because I believe that Saul had encountered the Lord Jesus in his incarnate ministry prior to Jesus' death and prior to Saul's conversion. You see, Saul, we find out about him uh, lots through the book of Acts. We find out in Acts chapter 22 that Saul was actually a resident of Jerusalem in his childhood. He grew up in Jerusalem. Remember how Paul had dual citizenship because his father was a Roman, but yet he, didn't, he, he accounts for us in Acts chapter 22 verse 3 that he was as a child reared or raised in Jerusalem. We find later on in Acts 23 16 that Paul makes a reference to his family. I think specifically a nephew or an aunt and uncle being in Jerusalem and so we have the, the ideology that he had strong family roots to Jerusalem and it was not like Saul was the type of Jewish leader who was far geographically removed from Jerusalem but at least he was very close to the great city and so he would have been one just like the disciples who if he had not lived in Jerusalem he would have traveled to Jerusalem for those pilgrimage feasts such as Passover and such as Pentecost. I believe with all of my heart that Saul of Tarsus the, the, and here's some things to understand about Saul of Tarsus. He was not just a redneck Joe from the hills and the hollers. This individual would have been known by history even if he would have never been converted in Acts chapter 9 and met Jesus. Because his intellectual ability was unlike anything else. And intellectualism was very important to Judaism. And actually, that was one of the big differentiators between the Jew and the Gentile. Is the Gentile didn't specify and capitalize on knowledge and the ability to read and understand while the Jews did. And Saul of Tarsus was one of the most brilliant intellectual minds of all Judaism in the first century. So much so that he studied under the great 
teacher, Gamaliel. And just to kind of encapsulate this in a nutshell for you, because I don't have time to go into all the detail, but just the fact that Saul studied under Gamaliel would have literally placed him in the top one percentile of knowledge of Jewish men in the first century. This guy was going places. He was already a Pharisee prior to Acts chapter 9. And he was probably, we don't know for certain, and there's some debate on it, but he was probably either a member of the council of the Sanhedrin or he was an up-and-coming member of the council of the Sanhedrin. What I'm trying to drive home to you is the ideology that Saul of Tarsus, being who he was some eight months to a year prior to Acts chapter 9, he would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And that same Passover feast is the one that began a week prior to the Passover day by Jesus riding in to the city of Jerusalem on a donkey and people begin to meet him and worship him and they cried aloud, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And throughout that week, Jesus would have multiple negative interactions with Jewish leaders. Remember how he would come off of that colt and he would go into the temple and there he encountered people who were buying and selling and they'd made the house of God into a place of profitability. And Jesus, in his righteous indignation and anger, turned over the tables and he made whips of cords and he drove out the money changers. And he quoted that great Old Testament verse. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. What if Saul of Tarsus was there leading worship that day? What if Saul of Tarsus was one of those conspiring leaders who had somehow allowed that perverse degradation of worship to business? What if he was there? What if he was one of the individuals whom Jesus drove out with a whip of cords? Or what if he was one of the individuals on a temple mount who tried to catch Jesus in his word that week and said to Jesus let me ask you something master in a rather smart electone of voice let me ask you something master is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar the great debate right we're, we're oppressed by the Roman government. We don't agree with them. And yet they're charging us all these taxes and it's not going to anything beneficial. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? I think it would have taken a highly intellectual individual to have come up with such a, pro, uh, uh, such a proposition to hopefully catch Jesus in his words. And I wonder had that been Saul of Tarsus. He flips Jesus a coin. The ironic thing about all this is that coin was Roman currency. It was not allowed on the temple mount. It was supposed to be exchanged, right? That's the people that Jesus drove out were the money changers. Maybe that was Saul who flipped Jesus a coin and Jesus replied in divine heavenly wisdom. With whose image and picture is on this coin? Was it, was it perhaps Saul of Tarsus who looked at the coin and answered Jesus? This is all woven fabric of my imagination, but could it have been him who said Caesar? And Jesus in divine heavenly wisdom says, then give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? Wait a minute, that is revolutionary. But then he drives home a statement that it would, would have pierced the hearts of every Jewish teacher of the law. Give to God's what is God's. 
Because in the beginning, on that, on that day when God reached his hand down out of heaven and he made man from the dust of the earth after he had created every other thing in creation by the spoken word, yet he forms man by the, from the dust of the ground with his very own holy hand. The scripture denotes that he made man in his own image, in his own life. John would account for us that Jesus in his incarnate body was the very image and likeness of God himself. Could it have been that Saul of Tarsus was on the receiving end? Could it have been that Saul of Tarsus was one of these religious leaders who encountered Jesus during that abrasive week prior to his crucifixion? I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I'm telling you this morning, there is some great motivation behind Saul's passionate, vehement opposition to the work of the church prior to Acts chapter 9, and even in the beginning parts of chapter 9, there is some kind of personal vendetta that Saul had against Jesus and against his followers. Regardless of what that is, I want us to understand that there was something there because the hatred that Paul possessed was, was greater than anyone else in Judaism or even in the Gentile world for that matter. And it was that great hatred that motivated him to carry out those evil acts against the church. But yet he was one of the greatest, most intellectual, knowledgeable religious leaders. And he was so passionate about what he did. This morning we're going to encounter not only one, but two incredible and sobering truths that we glean from the story of Saul of Tarsus and his conversion. And I want you to buckle up and get ready for this because it may not be popular, but I have to say it anyway. The first of these two sobering truths that we glean from the story of Saul of Tarsus, first of all, prior to his conversion, is this. That it does not matter how passionate nor how religious you are, you can still be wrong. No matter how passionate or religious you are, you can still be wrong. You can still be lost. You can still be separated from God by your very sin nature. For passion and religion are by no means guarantors of personal righteousness. But let's move on. As we encounter this seemingly climactic revolution, personal revolution for Saul of Tarsus, we're going to see that he encounters a divine transformation. Acts chapter 9. Verse 2, he asked the high priest, now get this, he is that close, that close friends with the high priest over all of Israel. Asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way, that's those who were following Jesus, that he might bring them bound in prison to Jerusalem. And he's traveling along and going to Damascus. And he's really close to the city limits of Damascus in Acts chapter 9 verse 3. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
Now, I don't know what the, what the trajectory of our nation and our world is going to hold, especially specifically after Tuesday, and I don't really know what it holds even before Tuesday. But I want to say, should persecution affect the church in America in the coming months and in the coming years and perhaps throughout the remainder of our lifetimes, should that happen, may we never forget the powerful perception from all of heaven from our Lord Jesus that it was not His people who Saul was persecuting, but it was Him Himself who was being persecuted. Jesus said, I want you to enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. So the men who traveled with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no man. And Saul gets up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. It was as if his corneas had been seared with a hot iron, and he was lead, they were leading him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and did not eat and did not drink. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and Ananias said, Here I am, Lord. He's excited about his next assignment and his next call. And Jesus absolutely knocks him off his feet in the 11th verse. And he said to him, get up and go to the street that's called Straight and inquire at the house of a man named Judas. That's not Judas Iscariot. Obviously, he's already gone. For a man from Tarsus named Saul is there and he is praying. He is seeking me. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, there is no way. I've heard about this guy and I've heard how he's killed people and he's imprisoned people all because they're doing what you just told me to do. God said, if I may paraphrase Ananias, don't worry about it. And if I may skip to the rest of the story and close it and encapsulate it just a bit, we find that Ananias goes into the house of Judas on the street called Straight, and he prays over Saul, and he says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And it was as if scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he continued with the disciples. The second of these two sobering truths that the story of Saul of Tarsus teaches us is that not an individual anywhere on the four corners of this earth, nowhere can an individual stretch themselves beyond the limits of God's amazing grace. Did you hear that one more time? You cannot stretch yourselves beyond the limitation of God's amazing grace. For God's amazing grace is beyond limitation. Saul, the most wicked of all men, the most evil of all men, the great foe of the ecclesiastical movement has now been converted. He's been transformed and he has experienced his own personal revolution. There's a comparative perspective between us and Saul. Because perhaps you're here this morning and you would say, Pastor, I hear you talk about Jesus and I hear you talk about revolution and I hear you talk about transformation and you just don't understand all the bad that I've done. Now maybe you're here this morning and maybe all the bad that you've done, maybe your spiritual resume is known by all. Or perhaps all the bad that you've done has been hidden secret and you're just like, I don't want anybody to figure out about all the bad I've done. Can I say to you regardless that neither my sin nor your sin or perhaps even the, the sum of our sin combined could even begin to compare to that of the Apostle Paul. 
And he would later write in one of his letters to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 at verse 15. He said this is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That word chief in the Greek is protos. And we get our prefix to the word prototype from protos. It means the first. And perhaps in hindsight, nearing the end of his days, Paul, or well, maybe not quite near the end of his days because that was 2 Timothy, but as he's writing that first letter to Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesian church, he's looking back on his past sin and he says, hey, all of this persecution, I started it. I was the first one. If there is anybody who is unworthy of the matchless, incredible, un, unending, undividable grace of God, it's me. And if Paul, why not you? Maybe you say, Pastor, you just don't get it. But let me outweigh your thought this morning again with saying, if Paul, if Saul of Tarsus, then why not you? This story begs the question. And perhaps this morning your mind, your heart, and your spirit likewise beg the question. How can such an evil man Experience such a divine, heavenly encounter. I'm glad that I asked because I want to answer. And I want to encapsulate it like this or summarize it like this. That that answer, how can a man so evil and wicked experience such a heavenly revolution? And by the way, the same answer is to your question, how can I, with everything wrong I have done, Pastor, how can I have such a heavenly encounter with the creator of the entire universe? Paul's story proves to us that it's as simple as A, B, C. Saul encounters Jesus. In his glorified form and he's struck down to the ground, Saul is, and, and he hears a voice and, and, and the voice said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And immediately Saul recognizes a divine attribute to this voice. He was no stranger to the things of God, which is once again... A sobering reminder for us that no matter how long we've been in church and no matter how religious we claim or appear to be, no matter how passionate we can be, we can still be lost, bound for eternity in a place called hell if it's not for the application of God's grace to our lives. Saul first said, Who are you, Lord? The A in ABC is admission. Paul said, Saul said here, he said, I am not Lord, but rather you are Lord. You are head over all. You are the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. And if you are Lord and I am not Lord, then that means I am subject to you. There is an admission that is necessary to any individual's conversion. And if you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, tell me more about how I may experience that heavenly encounter. Like Saul of Tarsus did. Tell me more. I'm going to say to you this morning, it begins with the A that you must admit that He is God and you are not. That He is right and you are not. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 summarizes it in this way. All have sinned. 
and came short of the glory of God. Saul said, who are you, Lord? And then we move to Jesus' specific instruction to Saul of Tarsus. He said, Saul, I want you to get up and I want you to go on into the city of Damascus and I want you to stay there on the street that is called straight with a man named Judas. Stay there. And I'm going to send someone to pray for you, for, for you, Saul, and it's going to be okay. And Saul stands up in obedience. And he believes. And I want to say to you this morning, the B. In the ABC of belief. Saul's ability, his, the word that I look for has slipped my mind, but Saul's choice to continue to follow this voice that he has described as the Lord was a statement. That he believes that whatever is happening to him is bigger than just him himself. It's bigger than Judaism. It is bigger than the school of Gamaliel. It's bigger than his own political and religious future. It is bigger than anything else he has ever encountered. That's why Saul of Tarsus willingly left behind his life to follow blindly the voice of the Lord Jesus. Yes, Romans 3.23 tells us that we've all sinned and come short of God's glory. We're hamartia. We've missed the mark of God's divine perspective for our life. It's our sinful nature. And that is what we must admit. But we carry on through the letter of Romans. And we see in chapter 6, verse 23, but the wages of sin is death. That's what our paycheck is because of our carnal nature. But it doesn't end there because the gift of God in Romans 6.23 is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we believe. The church has been known for decades, not necessarily this church particularly, but the church as a whole has been known for decades because of its divisive doctrines and divisions of denominations. And we've been known because we don't believe this, but yet someone else does. And we divide ourselves from one another because of that. But the key element to our faith and to our belief is our faith in statements such as Romans 6.23 that yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what we disagree about, but if we can come together on agreement of that one foundational statement, then the blood of Jesus that unites us far outweighs any doctrine that could divide us. This is your next step to believe and say, Lord, not only do I admit it, but I believe it. And then Saul, arising from the dust of the ground, with scabs covering his eyelids, unable to see anything, continues on. And he doesn't really, or so it appears, he doesn't really... This was originally an O because Hobby Lobby didn't have a C, okay? So I had to cut this out. And I didn't know that it wasn't flat on that side. And it doesn't want to, it doesn't want to stand up, okay? So sermon illustration fail of the year. I'm getting, getting it out of my system here. But don't miss the message, okay? <laughs> Saul stands up and he doesn't really even, uh, or so the scripture says, he doesn't really even give a proper explanation for what's going on to his individuals who are following him, his security, if you will, his assistants, his servants. But he just gets up and he goes on into Damascus. 
I'm reminded of the story of Ruth. Her husband, her brother-in-law, and her father-in-law pass away, and her Jewish mother-in-law, who's living in the wicked country of Moab that Ruth hailed from, says, I'm going to leave, and I'm going back home to Jerusalem. I'm going back home to Israel. And uh, ladies, it's been nice knowing you, but I'm out. And Ruth said, wait a minute. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God's, be my God. And Ruth's story is transformed from one of the most tragic to one of the most beautiful, gracious stories in all the Old Testament, used to be not only the lineage of the great King David and Solomon, but also the lineage of Jesus incarnate himself. And it began with her choice to follow her mother-in-law Naomi and her faith. Saul's transformation, his radical revolution began with his choice to follow this individual Jesus whom he had previously vehemently and passionately opposed. Saul found the crossroads in the middle of nowhere between Jerusalem and Damascus. And I believe that each of us here this morning find ourselves at some type of crossroads. For the church, if I may speak to us first, this pandemic has forced us into a crossroads of what we're going to do about our trajectory and our future. Not necessarily what are we going to do because we've lost people and people are fearful and people are scared and people are just honestly out of the habit of church and worship. And it's beyond that and it's beyond that we don't have a strong volunteer base as much as what we did perhaps say a year ago. It's beyond that. It's beyond the fact that yes, we don't have the huge cushion and surplus of budget that we did say a year ago. But it's about our structure. It's about our very vision, our identity of our church and of every church. I began reading, I finished up the book of Judges and went into the book of Ruth. And uh, this week I covered the book of Ruth. And yesterday morning, I, after finishing the book of Ruth, I began 1 Samuel. And I thought I'll just follow all this. I was studying the book of Judges for a particular reason in my personal study. And then I just said, oh, hey, Ruth is right there after. I mean, I knew that, you know, but Ruth is right there after Judges. And that's the most beautiful story in all the Old Testament. I got to check that out. And so I read it over again and was amazed. And then after Ruth comes 1 Samuel, I said, hey, that's going to lead into David. Let's just read that story, too. And so I began reading the first chapter of 1 Samuel. And I read about Eli, the prophet, the priest of Israel, the leader of Israel. And his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And how that they were wicked before the Lord. Can you imagine scripture itself describing you as being wicked before the Lord? But God said, I'm going to raise up somebody. And so there's a little woman by the name of Hannah, and her husband is Elkanah. And Elkanah had two wives, and the one wife had children, and Hannah's womb was barren, and she could have no children. And so constantly, the other wife picked on Hannah because she could not provide offspring for her husband. Oh, but Elkanah came to her with sweet words, and he said, Hannah, oh Hannah, you are fairer and finer to me than ten sons. Hannah said, it's not enough. 
So she goes into the temple and there she prays. And she said, God, if you will give me a son, I'll give him right back to you. What an incredible promise, dedication, and declaration. God gives her a son. She names him Samuel. Yes, the same Samuel that would later anoint David to be king in his father Jesse's house. Samuel is weaned. And she gives him back to the temple to serve under Eli. The end of the second chapter, I read it this morning. That as Samuel began to grow in stature and favor there in the temple. And he's set to take over the leadership of the nation of Israel. God gives a word to Eli, the priest. He said, Eli, you have tolerated wickedness. And if I may paraphrase, you have seen my house as a business. And Eli, because of that, if you don't change, if you don't repent, your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and their offspring who you think are set for life because they're of the priestly Levitical lineage and they're going to take over and they're going to continue in this. He said they're going to be so impoverished. The last verse of 1 Samuel chapter 2 says they're going to be so impoverished that they're going to come and knock on the door of the temple and beg for work in the temple just so they can have a piece of bread to eat. And it's a bold statement, but may I say this morning, if we or any other church going forward and after all that has transformed and transpired in our world in 2020, if we go forward with the same business model aspect of church that focuses on numbers and that focuses on hype and energy and crowds and things of that nature, then we'll be like the sons of Eli. But if we can adapt, this biblical blueprint that we are by no accident examining in our study of the book of Acts. I planned this literally almost two years ago and it got postponed because of COVID at its beginning, at, at its threshold. And now we're looking at it in detail and trying to discover the biblical blueprint for church. And it is by no accident and is far greater than anything I could ever plan or put on the calendar. But we must receive what God is trying to say. We may not be Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, but we need to say, God, who are you? As if we really, really, really want to know. If you're here this morning and you've never had that Damascus road experience, I'm not, I'm not saying you've never been baptized. I'm not saying you don't go to church or you don't sing with the worship team or you don't work in the ministry. But I'm saying if you've never really supernaturally encountered the Lord Jesus, then my friend, today you're at a crossroads. You're at a crossroads because Jesus is here with his nail-scarred arms stretched open wide and he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Saul made the decision to give up everything about life that he knew and follow this man named Jesus whom he had previously hated so passionately. And I don't believe from reading the remainder of the book of Acts or reading any of Saul's, Paul's uh, epistles in the New Testament, I don't believe there was a moment of regret 
for the up-and-coming political and religious leader who now chose him to spend the majority of his days in dark, damp, lonely dungeons because of his commitment to Jesus. See, the final concept that leads us down the path of salvation is the concept of repentance. Luke chapter 13 at verse 5. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. But if we go back to that seed, admit, believe, and choose. Choose today who you will serve. Choose. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 offers this great promise to all that whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now I could go all day long with this, but I've got to quit for time's sake. And for the sake of giving you a grand opportunity to say this morning, Lord Jesus, I want to commit my life to you. Whether you've already done that and you say, God, I really want to know who you are without all the filters that are on my mind that I've placed there through the, year, or if you've, through the years or if you've never had a true Damascus Road experience that you would come today and say, Lord Jesus, here's my life. In reading Romans 10, 10 13, the author holding the pen was the great intellectual Paul the Apostle. Oh, had it been Thomas who just doubted Jesus? Or had it been Simon Peter who just mouthed off because he was the loud mouth? It was his personality. Or had it been James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't really believe in him at first but was later converted? It would have been one thing for those men to say, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, not only speaking by divine inspiration, but from personal divine experience, says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever includes you. This morning as our praise team comes, as we stand and we prepare to pray together and to worship together, Would you take upon yourself the opportunity to to admit, to believe, and to choose today to serve the Lord Jesus? Would you stand with us as we pray together today? Father, we're so thankful.